couple of weeks now in the, the rear view mirror, the midterm elections have passed. And what's the result? Do you feel better about how things are now? Do you feel like you got your, your right people in the right place in charge of the right things, the right, the right party is in charge of the Senate or the House, and, and now everything's going to be fixed. Now we're going to figure out uh, whether or not we actually have to pay back our student loans. We're going to finally address inflation. We're going to figure out exactly what is the deal with abortion or marriage, for that matter. If you live in California, maybe you wonder if you're ever going to be able to actually afford a house if one wasn't passed down to you, or how much longer you can live here. Lots of questions that we have. A lot of a burden of responsibility on the government to fix all of these, these problems. Of course, as we, we consider the, the government and, and its role in, in all of these positions, and we reflect on that this morning, we're asking a, a pretty tall order of them, aren't we? Really demanding quite a bit. And, and it does feel sometimes, doesn't it, as if we, if we can just figure out the, the political system, if we can just get government to work for us, then, then we can address a lot of these problems. Why is that such a, a challenge? If we can just get the right person in the right place and we can all pull in in the same direction once again and we'll remind ourselves that we aren't the divided states of America but in fact the united states of America. So what is that going to take? Why can't we figure that out? Do we, do we need to, to add a third viable party as an option to, to vote for? Do we need to just kind of dissolve the way the system is right now and, and start from scratch? Or maybe we just go old school and establish a monarchy and have a king or a queen to rule over us. Now, before you laugh off that idea, stop and really give some thought to how much you are expecting of the government to fix the world's problems today. We ask an awful lot of the government, don't we? We expect them to, to enact this policy or that so that things are going to be fixed and are going to get better. And maybe we pine for the glory days when we had the, this great president or that political party that was in charge and everything was wonderful and everything was great. And we have in our minds this idea that, that it was all the right legislation and, and all of the right policies that things were so great back in that day. But that overlooks something. It overlooks that there's actually a, a more influential force at work than the government. It's actually the people of this nation of the United States of America. That is, if Abraham Lincoln was on to anything in the Gettysburg Address when he reminded us that ours is a unique government by the people, of the people, for the people. Well, if the government is a reflection of people who's governed by people of this nation, then isn't the government only a reflection of the people? And if that's the case, then is it really fair for us to blame the government for so many of the issues in our world today? And conversely, is it accurate for us to pin all of our hopes on the government today if, again, the real issue is the people? that the government oversees. So maybe that's the question. If the government isn't what's going to fix everything, and people are the real influence, the real force, how do we address the people? 
Well, we address them with the, the tool that, that God has given us to do that very thing. We sometimes forget, don't we, that the government cannot accomplish what only the gospel can. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what changes hearts. The government can't change hearts with any policy, with any legislation, but the gospel can. And it does. What exactly is the gospel? Well, you heard a a very simple, beautiful statement of that gospel from our Savior Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Recorded for us as your Savior was suspended on the cross, hanging there for you and for me. What did Jesus say to the criminal? He said, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How could Jesus make that promise to the one who was being crucified right next to him? Didn't he know who that individual was? Because, mind you, they didn't just crucify anybody for any petty crime. This was not a jaywalker that was hanging next to Jesus on the cross. Crucifixion was reserved for hardened criminals who had committed a serious crime, and it was a means that would not only cause them, bring them shame publicly, but great pain as well. And to this individual, Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. How could he make such a promise to this individual? It wasn't because of the individual's track record. It wasn't because of who that individual, that criminal was. Jesus Christ made that promise to that criminal because of who he was and is. King. And finally, at the end of the day, the king is the one who has all of the authority. The king is the one who makes the final judgment. And Jesus Christ is the only one who has the authority to to make that promise to anybody as he did to that criminal that he would be with him that very day in paradise. You notice that this was not the kind of king that the people in, in Luke's gospel expected. Did you pay attention to what their expectation of Jesus was? If he truly was an authority, if he was actually the king that that some claimed and that Jesus himself claimed to be, listen again to verses 35 to 39 and, and how the crowds reacted. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there also hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Did you see very clearly the expectation that everybody that was jeering Jesus had of him? They all said it whether it was the crowds, whether it was the soldiers, or even one of the criminals crucified right next to him, the expectation was, if you are a king, if you have any authority, save yourself. Prove it by saving yourself. And they all demonstrated something, didn't they? That they hadn't connected the dots about who Jesus was. That Jesus was not like any other worldly, earthly king they would ever know. 
Jesus did not come for himself and so was not interested in saving himself. Jesus is a king who came for others. The thief next to Jesus recognized that. We don't necessarily know how, and we don't necessarily need to, because we have a, a confession of faith from his lips as he was dying. Certainly surmisable that, that he had heard at some point who Jesus was and had heard the gospel message, whether or not he dismissed it. And, and now as he's really sitting there sinking, thinking about his mortality, that good message of the gospel starts to sink in. And he knew this was not a king like other kings. And so he made, as one of his last requests, this ask of Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal was relying completely 100% on Jesus' mercy. He knew that that was his only hope as it is for anybody to enter into Christ's kingdom. See, mercy does two things. Mercy realizes that it is incapable, that it is helpless to do anything for itself, but it also looks to the source of one who is able to help. And so when this criminal extended this request for mercy, he was showing Jesus, I am completely reliant only upon whether or not you remember me if you come into your kingdom. He did not point back to his track record. In fact, he did quite the opposite. Remember when he rebuked the other criminal? And he came to this conclusion reminding the other criminal, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He knew that he wasn't going to have any business telling Jesus right next to him, well, if you look back on my life, there were some times that I did some pretty good things or tried pretty hard. I was a pretty decent dude most of the time, Jesus. He knew flat out, I'm here crucified because I'm a criminal. And he knew that the only one that he could take any, any hope for assistance, any help, any mercy, was to Jesus. And he also knew something else. He knew that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. He wasn't in his request of Jesus expecting Jesus to immediately come down from the cross, set up some earthly kingdom, and call all of his followers to revolt and overturn Rome and set himself up as an earthly king. Though he didn't have a perfect understanding of what he knew, Jesus was a king of a different kingdom. He knew that, that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be when Pilate said to him, you are a king then. And Jesus said, yes, but you are mistaken. My kingdom is not of this world. And how could it be? His is a kingdom of grace. His is a kingdom of holiness, of righteousness. His is a kingdom that doesn't permit, doesn't allow for any sin. And so only Jesus could establish that kingdom. And only Christ the King was doing that very thing as he assured this thief right next to him that he would be in his kingdom. He would be in paradise. Because Jesus made possible what no government could ever do, no matter which party it is. Jesus made possible what no protesting, what no activist, no what righteous cause, none of that could ever accomplish. Jesus actually, quite frankly, wasn't, 
wasn't concerned with those trivial little things that we often fill ourselves up with. He was concerned with the solution to the bigger problem behind all of them. Sin. And the sinners responsible for it. You, me, and all people. So as, as King Jesus was suspended there on the cross, he knew very well that he was making it possible for this criminal and for all who would look to him as that criminal did, he was making possible entrance into his kingdom purely by his mercy because of the price that he was paying right at that very moment. Spilling his blood as the only acceptable payment for sinners who could then be brought into his kingdom. Do you want to make a difference? I mean, really, do you, do you really want to make a difference? A lot of people talk about feeling like, uh, I, I don't feel like I, I'm here for any purpose or, or what I'm doing isn't making a difference in this world. And so that's where we get into the activism and, and these causes and that cause. And there's a place for them. But there's something you can do that is far more impactful. Fewer debates. More devotion. Less politics, more prayer, maybe less scrolling, more sacrament, less isolation, more invitation, maybe a little bit fewer excuses and more evangelism. And that's not to say that the other causes that we're involved with in this world are meaningless. Absolutely. Go and, and be a good citizen of this country as we are called to do. But don't pin all of your hopes on those causes. Yes, they can be a blessing to your fellow neighbor, but don't expect those to do what only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is going to do in your life and through you in the lives of others. Christ's kingdom is, is not of this world. Do you realize we, we pray, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer for His kingdom to come? And it's why it's such a beautiful prayer. But realize we also get to be the answer to that prayer as we realize that it's not through the government but through the gospel that King Jesus longs to bring others into His kingdom. Because it is not the kind, the government is not able to make the kind of changes that only the gospel does. In Christ's kingdom, it is the gospel and the gospel alone that changes hearts. And when hearts are changed, communities are changed. And when communities are changed, the world is changed. And all of this, not through an elected official, not through the government, but through the gospel. So let us focus on putting that gospel in Christ's kingdom to work that he might draw others into his kingdom. And then, brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll be talking about a different kind of election, not an election that is one with the right number of votes, not an election that results in getting the right party in place, but an election unto eternal life. An election that comes only in Christ's kingdom. An election that is guaranteed only through the blood of Christ, our King, who made the perfect sacrifice to bring you into his kingdom and who promises all of those who are in his kingdom will be with him in that kingdom forever in the presence of Christ the King himself. A king unlike any other because this king did not come selfishly to serve himself 
Christ is your king who came for others, your king who came for you. Amen.